0: Morning. I heard about a man who went to the doctor The doctor said, Bob, you've really got to change your diet You've got to lower your cholesterol And Bob said, well, I don't really like that I think, I think I'd like a second opinion The doctor said, okay, you're ugly too There was a man laying in the hospital, and his wife of 65 years was sitting at his bedside. Is that you, Ethel? He whispers. Yes, dear, she answered. He said, I remember years ago when I was badly injured and was in the hospital. You were right there by my side. We lost everything in the house fire. You alone were with me. When I lost my job, you were there with me, too. Ethel, you are bad luck. (laughs) Oh, isn't that great? Criticism. Criticism. It's something that we welcome as much as a root canal. Sometimes it's necessary, but it is seldom pleasant. And it's especially painful when the criticism is unfounded. When somebody feels that God's given them the right and the insight to observe something about you, but they're flat wrong. In the Old Testament, God set up what are called cities of refuge, Cities of refuge are cities designated throughout Israel and if you plot them on a map of Israel you see that they are evenly spaced throughout the land so that if somebody accidentally if the city of refuge existed in case you accidentally killed someone I mean a, a, a clear case of manslaughter It was a complete accident but the guy's family wants to get revenge and so cities of refuge were set up so that you could flee to this city and have sanctuary until you could be proven innocent. It was a place to go when you were unjustly criticized so that you could have a, have, be safe until the truth came out. Well, what's true, what was true of the cities of refuge is also true spiritually in our lives. We need a place of refuge. We need a shelter when critics curse. And boy, don't they curse. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel 16. We're going through a series where we take a single message from each book of the Bible. Last week we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 16, in which David was anointed, a boy shepherd, uh, selected as the youngest of Jesse's eight sons, and everyone was surprised, probably not the least of which David was surprised, that he was chosen by God out of all the people in Israel to replace the raging King Saul, the unfaithful King Saul, as God's king. He was anointed king, but he was not yet appointed king or uh, took on the position of king. He was simply anointed, which must have been very confusing to David because years and years would pass before David would come to the position for which he was anointed. He was anointed, and then he was prepared. Years and years of preparation. Between 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 16, where we find ourselves today, there was a lot of preparation in David's life, not the least of which was running from jealous King Saul. We also looked last week at 1 Samuel 17, where David killed Goliath, and this was David's meteoric rise to popularity and David becomes popular, he's a national hero, Saul now uses David to become not only the one who plays the harp and drives away the evil spirits, but also David's, uh, Saul's man that goes out in battle. And whatever David does, David wins. And there was a saying that began to be said that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And this statement galled Saul. He was so jealous that he was only getting attributed the thousands. But David had ten thousands. And Saul said, what else can he have but the kingdom? And he looked at David from suspicion with that day on. And the rest of 1 Samuel all the way to the end of the book has Saul chasing David and them missing each other sometimes by a whisker. But what we also see during that time of preparation is that David had on a couple of occasions the opportunity to take Saul's life. Could have easily done it on a couple of occasions. And both those occasions, David realized, in fact, one specific occasion at Engedi, David realizes and tells his men, I'm not going to touch Saul. One day, his day will come. I'm going to leave him in God's hands. One day, he'll die in battle one day he'll die this way one day he'll die that way I love it he says you know the solution is Saul's going to die not that he's going to repent and become a good king he's just going to die one day but I'm going to let God take care of that I'm not going to do it what's funny though is you have a couple of occasions where David could have taken Saul's life and in between those occasions you have the incident of David and Nabal remember that where Nabal is rude to David and David's like, well, come on guys, strap on your swords and let's go take care of this fool. And if it hadn't been for Abigail's wise and discerning intervention, David would have started his kingdom with a blot on his reputation. But I mention that to say David wasn't all, hey guys, let's trust God. There there were times like with Nabal that he was having to learn, oh yeah, I need to take my hands off of this situation and trust God with it. So between 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 16, God is preparing David to be the king that God wants him to be. Well, David has this wonderful kingdom, um, but of course we know what happened. The infamous affair with Bathsheba was a huge turning point in David's life and in his family because the chapters that immediately follow after that are discord, murder, rape, um, um, and other other terrible things that occurred. Till ultimately, here in 2 Samuel 16, David is being chased out of Jerusalem because his rebel son Absalom has claimed the kingdom for himself. At the end of chapter 15... We won't read it, but uh, if you look at verse 30, it talks about David going up the Mount of Olives barefoot. If you go to Jerusalem today, you'll stand on the Mount of Olives, and you can easily see the slope goes down to Jerusalem, and you can picture, okay, there's the city of David where David reigned. You can picture David and his troop of people coming down through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives as David, the rejected king, is on the Mount of Olives reminds us of what occurred a thousand years later as our Lord Jesus is riding down the Mount of Olives. Everyone's celebrating because here comes the king, but Jesus is weeping because he knows that he, like David, was rejected. A thousand years later on the exact same slope. Chapter 16, we're told that David passed over the summit and came to a place just beyond it. Look down at verse 5 and let's begin reading. Second Samuel sixteen five, when King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of the king of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and his left. We're told that Shimei is from the house of Saul. And that's significant because remember, uh, Saul was the king right before King David. And we're we're about to see Shimei's words reveal the fact that some people just can't accept God's will. It was God's will that David be king and that Saul be replaced. And here we have Shimei decades after Saul's death still holding this bitter grudge. Not only does he hurl stones, but he also hurls words. Look at verse 7. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom, And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed." Wayne Watson used to have a song called Sticks and Stones, I think, and in it, he sings, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can break my heart, lies can break my heart. Have you ever noticed that critics often have the worst things to say when you're going through the worst times? They usually don't come at you when things are going well. The enemy will come at you when you are at a vulnerable low point, and he will whisper things in your ear that will, make, that will take you down even lower. Here you have David being usurped by his own son, and he's leaving Jerusalem rather than fight his son. And this Benjamite, Shimei, comes out from the hole that he has been living in at Bahurim, and takes this low opportunity to throw stones at David and at his servants and to make this unjust accusation that somehow he's guilty of what happened to the house of Saul. Most of us have had enough unjust criticism in life to fill a septic tank. We have heard it. I'll never forget one time years ago, I had a friend that I used to work with. He poked his finger at my sternum and severely criticized me. And it really hurt. Not so much the words, though they did hurt, but, but the blindness, because what he criticized me of, he was guilty of in spades. It was shocking. <laughs> it was very shocking. And again, the hard part of criticism is timing. Shimmy picked the worst time. And so how do you respond? How do you respond when somebody hurls a false accusation at you? Well, look at how David responded, or or how his his soldier, Abishai, responded. This is what we'd like to do. Verse 9, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. Yeah. That's how we want to respond, isn't it? To return like with like. To let him have it. If nothing else, to just set the record straight to defend yourself. Say, whoa, wait a minute. If you you remember, I had nothing to do with Saul dying. I I ran from Saul. I saved Saul's life on a number of occasions when the same man that wants to kill you now was trying to kill Saul. I have nothing to do with the guilt of Saul, the death of Saul. Abishai suggested striking back, and that is our natural reaction when somebody unjustly accuses us. But look how David responded. Not what we expect. Verse 10 but the king said, interesting, He still called the king. What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abshai and to all his servants, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord will has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Get a friend to tell you your faults, or better still, welcome an enemy who will watch you keenly and sting you savagely. What a blessing such an irritating critic will be to a wise man. What an intolerable nuisance to a fool. Sounds very proverbial, doesn't it? If we're wise, we can sift through the anger. We can sift and filter out the emotion and even the injustice that's attached like barnacles to the truth. David did say, notice David does, does say, he doesn't try to uh, save face with the unjust criticism about the house of Saul, but notice in verse 12, he does say, let him alone for the Lord has told him, or verse 11. In other words, there's an element there that David says, you know what? It's possible I deserve this because I haven't been a perfect man. I've certainly not been a perfect parent, and I did not deal rightly in regard to um, the Bathsheba incident with her husband. David says, "You know, it's very possible that this is very just. So, if God's told him to curse, don't tell him to stop. And if God's told him, and if God's not told him the curse, then let him alone, because God will take care of it. In fact." My response of grace may turn around, he says verse 12. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. If you're wise, you won't match pride with pride, but with humility. Listen to a few proverbs. The book of Proverbs has scores to to say about a person who refuses to listen. To correction, Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a man of understanding, but wa- but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A fool just assumes he's right, but a wise man listens to counsel. Proverbs seventeen ten: A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The Proverbs are saying, and David is illustrating, that a person of wisdom welcomes feedback. It isn't easy to hear. We don't always receive it well, but we should welcome it. Only a fool, the Proverbs say, think that he or she has already arrived. And in a way, they have, because they won't go any further. They won't grow, because they won't receive. David acknowledges it's possible that maybe I've done wrong here. But he also acknowledges maybe I've not, and this is just another, another, um, another issue from the house of Saul I'm having to deal with. How did David deal with the house of Saul when Saul was alive? He gave it to God. How is David dealing with the house of Saul now when this person from the house of Saul is cursing him? He gives it to God. He does the exact same thing. And notice two words that are very helpful at the end of verse 12. The New American Standard says, and return to me instead of his cursing this day. Those are the two words to notice, this day. We get so caught up in the moment that we think that that the way it is now is the way it's always going to be. There is so much emotion wrapped around how we feel that we can't imagine it will ever improve. And if you've ever been in a situation, whether it's a family member or an accusation at church or at your work or in your neighborhood, and it's unjust, and it really, really hurts, you, it hurts so much that you can't see beyond the moment. You can't see hope beyond the moment. David says, this day, it's unfair and it hurts. But you know what? It's possible that God may look on my affliction and return good to me instead of the cursing this day. Here's a principle that's worth mulling over. When you are criticized unjustly, take it to God and trust him for vindication beyond today. Our challenge is we want vindication immediately. Like Abishai, where's my sword? We can take care of this right now. You don't have to listen to this, David. You're the king. You're the anointed one. But David says, no, we're not going to handle it like that. David had learned how to trust God. So we're going to let God deal with it. So they continue on. Look at verse 13. So David and his men went on their way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. Now we're not told this here in 2 Samuel, but it's very possible that part of this refreshing, notice it says he refreshed himself. We're talking about David. It's possible that part of this refreshing was David getting off alone by himself and writing Psalm three. So keep your hand here in Second Samuel and turn to the right and look at Psalm three. 2 Samuel gives us the historical, geographical perspective. Psalm 3 gives us the spiritual, emotional perspective of this same event. The superscriptions of the Psalms are inspired. They're in the Hebrew text. And sometimes it's difficult to to realize what's what. Like, for example, in the New American Standard here in Psalm 3, it says, Psalm 3 Morning prayer of trust in God, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So, how do you know what's a superscription when you've got the editors helping us out by giving us a summary of the whole thing? Well, it isn't always easy, but uh, at least in my Bible, you can see there's a different font, and uh, you might note the same in yours. Where it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son, that is in the Hebrew text and this is the first of 13 psalms that have a superscription is what it's called, a little preamble before the psalm itself that tells you the occasion from which this psalm was written. Psalm three was written at this time where David was running from Absalom and it's very possible that David wrote Psalm three that evening as he had just fled and he refreshed himself. Let's look at this psalm because it gives some insight that can also help us when we are unjustly accused. Um, Starting here with the superscription. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. Selah. It's a Hebrew term that probably means pause and let that sink in. That's what Dr. Pentecost used to say at Dallas Seminary. Pause and let that sink in. So let's do that. What are we pausing and letting sink in? That many are saying of David, there's no deliverance for him in God. Are saying of my soul. The word there for soul is the Hebrew term nephesh. It doesn't just mean the immaterial part of you. When we see soul, we tend to think like our spirit. The Hebrew word for soul means not just your spirit, but all of you. Your body, your mind, your emotions, your soul, your entire being. People are saying of David's life, of all of who he is, God's left you. There's no deliverance for you in God. But David knows better than that. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord... Are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. From his holy mountain, from Jerusalem. David realizes that even though many are saying that even though many are rising up against him, including his own son, even though many are saying, even God has abandoned you, David knows, no, God has not abandoned me. God is a shield about me. He is the one that lifts up my head. I don't have to walk around discouraged, even when I'm unjustly accused. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and God answered from Jerusalem, from his holy mountain, from the place of God's habitation. David knows the truth. He has not been abandoned by God. Think about it. God said in the scriptures, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God told Abraham don't be afraid I am a shield I am your shield David says Lord you are a shield about me and you lift up my head so on what basis is David getting comfort because he says in verse 4 I was crying to God with my voice and he answered me he is talking about answered prayer that's occurred in the past David gets encouragement for his present situation, based on the fact that God's been faithful in the past. He has never let us down. Do you have a, a record of God's faithfulness in your life? A great place to do that is in your Bible. That as you're reading through, you're going to find that, amazingly, what you're reading for that particular day relates to what you're struggling with at that particular moment. It's great to actually write down in your Bible and put a date in there, you know, I prayed this verse on such and such a date when I was dealing with such and such an issue. And what you'll find, as I have found, as you read back through the Bible in years to come, amazingly, God has been faithful with that issue. And you have a record of God's faithfulness. David is able to say, you know what? This situation is very similar to stuff I've gone through in the past, and I'm just going to trust God with this. That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But it, also, but it also doesn't mean that I'm going to give up. God is the lifter of my head. He is a shield around me. He's been faithful in the past, and he's going to be faithful right now. Look at the rest of these verses. Verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. David had the odds against him many times, but he's learned that numbers mean nothing if God is for you. God plus one is a majority. God plus you and your situation is a majority. If God is with you, none could be against you. David knows this, and he applies that to his life. It's so helpful not to base your decisions and your emotions simply Uh, or maybe I should say your decisions each day simply on your emotions. But you filter your emotions through the Bible. You look at the Bible and you filter your emotions through Scripture. And if there's something that catches in that filter, you toss it out. Or at least you mentally say, Lord, this is how I'm feeling. God can, can handle how you feel, even if it's wrong. He can handle it, and it's okay to talk to him about it. Many times you'll see in the Psalms stuff, you think, wow, should that be in the Bible? Like you see people praying, Lord, dash their babies against the rocks. (laughs) When's the last time you prayed that? That sounds more like Abishai than some godly person. Well, this is a godly person expressing to God how they feel, not necessarily what they believe. Even David does that. Lord, have you abandoned me forever? David doesn't believe that, but that's how he feels. And it's okay to express to God how you feel. God can handle it. But also filter those feelings through Scripture and let theology lift you up because your emotions will sink you down, especially when you've got people all around you saying of you, there's no deliverance for you in God. God's not going to be with you this time. Or this is happening because you blew it. David was dealing with all of that, and he refreshed himself based on truth. We'll turn back to 2 Samuel, but instead of looking at chapter 16, flip a few chapters farther to chapter 19, and let's look at how some of this resolved. The story goes on that God did, in fact, deliver David. His son Absalom was killed, and the rebellion is over, and David heads cross back, back across the Jordan River and is met by his son, uh, is met by Shimei. I'm sorry, I'm trying to decide whether or not to talk about something, but I guess I will. Um, we won't turn there, but there is a chapter in, uh, well, I guess we can. It's right here in chapter 19. Let's, let's look at it, it hopefully it won't take too long. 2 Samuel 19, notice at the very beginning it says, Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. So you see that David's pain in this situation wasn't so for much for David, it was for his son Absalom. And when he, when he says, oh my son, my son, how I wish that I had died instead of you. You see the overwhelming guilt that David feels for the type of father he's been. And he's weeping and mourning over Absalom, and the people realize, Wow, we just saved David's life, and his son Absalom is dead, and David is sad because of that. He's not happy that there's victory. He's sad because of Absalom. And we're told, verse 2, the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the the people heard of it and said, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. Well, look at verse 5. This is like the only good thing I think Joab's ever done. I I try to think of another instance where Joab was not the the non-model. But here, Joab nails it. In a moment of weakness, David is not thinking as a leader. He's simply thinking as a father. But he's got to think on both levels, and he doesn't. So Joab comes in, and look at Joab's words. Verse 5, "'Joab came into the house to the king and said, "'Today you've covered with shame the faces of your servants.'" who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know that this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you'd be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out, speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. It's sort of a sidebar application, but here is a great challenge that occurs when you have such um, an affinity when when you bring family into the situation. Boy, it can be tough to be a leader in a context of family. I've seen it happen some, but most of the time I see it, it doesn't work well. And even David struggled with it. And basically, Joab came in and and gave these principles to David that basically said, look, when we give disproportionate favor to family, we show how lightly we value those who have done the true work that have saved our skins. So if you've got a business, for example, in which you've got family involved, be careful because other people are watching how you treat that family member as opposed to the the uh, those who have actually given you the success. so Joab gives wisdom and says, "Look, stop taking advantage of them, show genuine appreciation to the, that they deserve for the, for your success and David once again, in his wonderful model of humility, arises pushes his own feelings aside, and gets back into the leader that he needs to be, and he goes and shows appreciation to his people. All right, look down at verse 18. So they come across the Jordan River, and what do you know? Here's Shimei again. Verse 18, they kept crossing the ford to bring the king's household and to do what was good in his sight, And Shimei, the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. So he said to the king, "'Let not my lord consider me guilty, nor remember what your servant did wrong on the day when my lord the king came out of Jerusalem, so that the king would take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king.'" Well, that's pretty subtle, pretty crafty. Not only is he come and saying, you know what, now you're back in power, I'm sorry. Turns out this isn't going to go well for me if I don't come clean. And Shimmy says, I know what I did was wrong. And notice also he says, he, he doesn't say any longer, I'm the first from the house of Saul. But he says, from the house of Joseph. Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was Joseph's son. And so to say, I'm from the house of Joseph, now he's backing up and looking at what we saw first hour when, when we read in Genesis about Joseph forgiving his brothers. This is what Shimei wants. Shimei wants the forgiveness that Joseph gave. And, and David, in his, uh, in his grace, responds to Shimei at this moment, with grace, and gives him to God. Look at verse 21. But Abishai, can you guess what's coming? Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, says, "'Should not Shimei be put to death for this, "'because he cursed the Lord's anointed?' "'David then said, "'What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah, "'that you should this day be an adversary to me? "'Should any man be put to death in Israel today?' Or do I not know that I am king over Israel today? The king said to Shimei, You shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. So Abishai's solution, once again, is retaliation. But David puts Shimei in God's hands. You know, sometimes justice comes in life. Sometimes we wait for heaven for it. But isn't it wonderful when we see it in life? <laughs> Isn't it nice? You know, it happens in most movies. Most movies wrap it up where the bad guy gets it in the end. But but life isn't most movies. Sometimes injustice goes and we don't know how it's going to get worked out. But it's so wonderful when it actually does. I read about a guy who robbed a bank in Toledo, Ohio. And after robbing the bank, he runs out with the money toward his getaway car and he falls down. Well his driver panics and leaves him. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And so this guy jumps into the next available car, which had two men in the front seat, and it was an unmarked police car. (laughs) That's a true story. True story. That's great when that happens. But, boy, so often it doesn't. Well, it happened in David's life, or I should say it happened in life as well, Let's look at one more place. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. Because God doesn't let Shimei get away with it. And that's really helpful for us to to read. 1 Kings chapter 2. Can we trust God to vindicate us? If not in this life and the next? Absolutely. David trusts God to do the vindicating when he's criticized. Over and over and over, we see that in David's life. God vindicated David through providential circumstances, and he condemned Shimei, we'll see, through the same. David's about to die here in 1 Kings 2, and he's passing on the kingdom to Solomon. Look down in verse 8. 1 Kings 2, verse 8. David tells Solomon, Behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite of Bahurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Mahanaim. That's a mouthful. Mahanaim. But when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore by him, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, "I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do with him and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. In other words, David is saying, Solomon, I promised that I would not take his life, but I didn't make any promises concerning you. You're a wise man. Deal with him according to wisdom. So what did Solomon do? Solomon told Shemi, here's how it's going to go. You get to stay alive as long as you stay in Jerusalem. But the day you leave Jerusalem, you're a dead man. Well, Shimei's servants probably got wind of this, and they decided, you know what, we're going to take a vacation down to the coast, and they leave. Shimei goes and gets them, leaving Jerusalem. Comes back in, Solomon hears of it, and takes Shimei's life. David knew Shimei's character, and that character would eventually betray him. That's what we can also assign in our own lives. When somebody is unjustly criticizing you, it's because they have a filter of injustice in their life. And it doesn't just show up in their words. It's going to show up other places. You can trust God to deal with it. You can trust God to deal with it. Whether he deals with it after your death, as was was the case with David, or whether he deals with it ultimately in glory, God will deal with it and we will be vindicated. There are times when you are unjustly criticized and uh, it's, not, it's not public knowledge. I can remember one time when I was unjustly criticized publicly and then those who worked beside me came up privately and said, we know that's wrong and we want, we, we want you to know we're supporting you. That happens privately. But so often publicly, it isn't the case. This was how it was with David and Shemi, And this is how it is in all of our lives. David left justice in the hands of God. He didn't retaliate. He left it for God to deal with it. And God will deal with it. That's the great comfort that we can have. We don't have to have justice now knowing that God will deal with it in justice. But also, I think it's helpful for us to remember, David didn't assume that he was completely innocent. This is the hard part of hearing criticism. David also said, you know what, it's possible there's some truth in it. It's possible that God's told Shemi to curse David. And there is an element of reflection whenever somebody criticizes us that we can say, you know, God, help me look past all the emotion and just get to the kernel of it. Is there something I really need to listen to here? Do I really need to be open to what they're saying? Is there any kernel of truth in it? And if there is, help me see it, help me change, help me be humble, help me be like Christ. David acted that way, and that's that is one of the finest attributes of this king who was deeply flawed and yet still was a man after God's own heart. So You know, sometimes the people that criticize us, that hurt the worst, are those closest to us. Think about Job. It was his wife that said, curse God and die, when Job was suffering. It was his dear friends that came to him and said, you know, Job, the reason this is happening to you is because you've sinned, and he hadn't. He was unjustly accused. Think about Jesus. Talk about being unjustly accused and criticized. <coughs> the accusations were not false, were, were, were completely false. But in each of these cases, their responses to the treatment offer us a model of how we can respond to. We've already looked at David's model. Job's model was to appeal to God who knew the truth and who was in complete control. Jesus' model is well-recorded by Peter's words. Listen to what Peter writes about Jesus. 1 Peter 2.23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But here's what he did do. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what David did. It's what Job did. It's what Jesus did. And that's what we can do. Here's a final principle, and I hope that this gives some comfort to you if you're in a season of injustice. We can ease the burden of unjust criticism by knowing that God knows the truth and he will make things right in his time. Isn't that comforting? If anybody needs to know the truth, it's God. And he knows the truth. And he'll make it right in his time. It's wonderful if we can save face in public, But where does it really matter before God? And he will make it right in his time. Now, just because we have grace in our lives doesn't mean we always roll over and show our tummies. We can and we must repeatedly call out to God for justice. There's nothing wrong with that at all, to ask God for justice. And God gave us brains. He gave us a legal system. If it's a legal issue, you can take legal action. It doesn't mean you just roll over and let somebody walk all over you. But also, we have to factor everything that we're dealing with through the sovereignty of God because God may decide to deal with it in a a way that isn't legal or in a way that even, even isn't right. But ultimately, he will deal with it if not in this life. The author of the book of Hebrews has a wonderful principle for us. The author writes this in Hebrews 6:18. We have taken refuge. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope, to take hold of the hope before us. Let me read that again. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. We take refuge, and we know that God will make it all right in his time. Let's pray. (laughs) Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. Father, the proverb reminds us, that in your grand plan, any curse that's outside of your will isn't going to stick. Balaam couldn't make it stick. Instead, you flipped it, and it became a blessing. It was the same in David's life, in Job's life, in Jesus' life, and it will be that way in our lives. Help us in the meantime to cling to you and to trust you. I think of Paul's words that he wrote to the Thessalonians where he says, After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Father, we don't want anyone to hurt unnecessarily. We're not asking for you to bring an Abishai and lop off a head. But we are asking in situations all across this room where there is injustice that is not yet seen the light of day of of justice, We ask for what's right to come out. We ask for you to be glorified, that right would be shown even in this life. But if it isn't, we're not gonna walk around with our heads down. As David says, you are the lifter of our heads because we know that ultimately you will make it right. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for David's example. And help us to walk forward today taking a deep breath and resting and knowing you're going to make it right. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.